I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces is supported by NCARB. You have the power to influence the future of how architects are educated, trained, and licensed. Take the analysis of practice survey today. We're talking about the, on the one hand, the value of house, say, as a commodity, dwelling unit as a commodity. And on the other hand, what we're really trying to talk about is the idea of permanence and community building and that they would never sell this house. And so that other point, I don't want to say it becomes moot, but, uh, you know, it's a slightly different take on the value proposition. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Thanks for coming back, everybody. I think today's episode is particularly timely in the context of what we're going through in society right now, coming off of the pandemic and discussions about wealth disparities. In today's episode, we're going to discuss multi-generational housing. Our guest is Michael Leckie, an architect and entrepreneur who founded Leckie Studio Architecture and Design, based in Vancouver, Canada. In this conversation, we're going to dig into the benefits of multi-generational housing, We're going to highlight a project of Leckie's studio called Full House. We'll go over Michael's design process. He shares some insight into the evolution of policy, including the blurring of zoning, which is beginning to allow more living units. 
and we'll discuss special considerations. Today, I am joined by Michelle as we discuss multi-generational housing with Michael Leckie. So, Michelle, uh, I've been looking around in the news lately and uh, multi-generational housing. When, when I say that to you, what sort of comes to mind? And also, do you think that as a concept that exists here in the U.S.? Absolutely, it exists. And it's happening in it's happening whether we're building for it or not. So, you know, multi-generational living is happening across the nation, I would argue. And, you know, you see it in single family detached homes where you have families that are doubling up. You have adult children that may be coming back home to live with their parents. And, you know, I think we're starting to see different groups uh, develop and plan for it, which is pretty exciting. I, I can think of one public home builder that, you know, a handful of years ago, I don't remember the exact year, but they literally came out with that concept and they started marketing their product. And you could go uh, choose that as an option where you had as part of your single family detached home, um, you know, a separate living quarters that was really geared towards uh, that multi-generational concept of having your in-laws or your folks or um, your adult age children come back and, and live with you. So yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely exists. Yeah. And I was looking in the news, it seems that um, the pandemic it has very much encouraged even more of this type of living. So, um, But we have a guest today that, that is very experienced in the multi-generational homes. It has a particular project that we'll discuss today as well that really highlights this concept. And so we'll dig into that. But he is the founder uh, at Lecky Studio Architecture and Design. Please help me welcome Michael Lecky. Michael, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, Demetrius. Michelle, great to meet you. Um, excited for the conversation today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, so I looked at the project. Very cool. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But um, before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, your company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lecky Studio is a 20-person architecture and design practice that I founded in 2015 as a platform to craft singular, thought-provoking, and imaginative architectural work. I understand the, the practice is a vehicle for creative speculation. We expand the boundaries of traditional architectural practice through research, client commissions, as well as self-initiated projects. And we're always looking to combine architecture with creative entrepreneurship. We tend to really explore and, and plumb the kind of tensions between uh, the extremes in a project, the universal, the specific, the mind, the body, physical, virtual, and real and imagined dimensions of the work. And we really try to preference a kind of slowness to the work where the rigor of the architectural intention will reveal itself over time to the patient observer. That all sounds very, um, very artsy. <laughs> 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 yes, it, you know, I would say uh, the studio draws a lot of inspiration from uh, many forms of art. Artists, the, uh, the work of Donald Judd, uh, film, the work of Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, we are definitely interested in the sort of existential and, and psychological aspects of, mm -hmm. of, you know, what it means to, to inhabit space and create space. So before, I, I'm sure Demetrius has a whole series of questions to ask, but I want to just maybe root 
the conversation in this the type of architecture because I did go on your website and anyone that's listening you should jump on right now and, and check out the website but before we continue on can you just talk quickly about scale are you more of a custom home architect or are you doing this large-scale development are you at all in the commercial space or is it really residential it help us kind of just tr- you triangulate what product type or food group we're really talking about in terms of real estate that's a great question, Michelle. Um, you know, the answer I would say is we're kind of a small, enormous practice in the okay. sense that we have a, you know, we have a, a core team primarily of architects, uh, also multidisciplinary designers, and we take on a very wide range of project scale and typology. And our idea has been to develop a, a very rigorous methodology um, that is scenario based, understanding place, community, and then applying that across a wide range of scales. So I think the the studio, um, you know, has a like I say a very broad set of interests, and and those are probably largely derived from my own personal preoccupations. In concrete terms, actually, what I would say is we do custom single family homes. Okay. We you know we do um, cabins, off grid structures, recreational properties. I also uh, am a co founder of two other businesses. Maybe it's it's worth sharing that perspective uh, at the outset, one of which is called the Backcountry Hut Company. And this was really uh, a project, a passion project that was sort of born in the Lucky Studio Incubator, uh, if, I, if I can say that, with a childhood friend of mine, Wilson Edgar. And, you know, we've developed these kit of parts systems to be able to deploy prefabricated, uh, scalable, mass-produced architecture into remote locations. Uh, I'm also the co-founder of a company called Arcana, which is a Canadian startup that is really bringing people back to nature uh, with nature-based wellness in a kind of micro-hospitality platform. Um, So we do a lot of very interesting kind of remote off-grid work. Um, We also are involved in multifamily development, market and retail projects, institutional work. We recently finished a project at the University of British Columbia as well as creative workplace and a number of uh, boutique retail projects. That's great. With your uh, entrepreneurial background and focus, we're going to have we have to try to get you back in on maybe one of our express episodes to explore some of those those projects that you're working on too. Um, that sounds great. I'd love that. But for today, um, talking back about uh, multi-generational homes, to sort of set this stage, can you talk a little bit about what exactly a multi-generational home is? Like, how would you define it? Yeah, I, I think the definition is fairly simple. You know, a multi-generational home is, is any home uh, within which multiple generations of people are living together. And I would say this is more than two generations, a parent and a, and a, and a child generation, um, while integrating, you know, the values of familial symbiosis and support. Uh, and it's important to understand this is by no means uh, a new idea. In fact, I would suggest it's it's more of a kind of you know lost wisdom or lost knowledge type of thing. And if we think back to traditional forms of you know tribal living across the globe, uh, indigenous ways of life, and and even uh, the long history of the development of communities and cities, you know this is a, a very very common idea. We find ourselves here in the in the you know 2022 looking at the landscape of suburban detached homes across North America. And I think people are really starting to 
uh, understand whether it's out of necessity or uh, out of opportunity, the benefits of actually living in a larger family unit. What would you say some of those benefits are that you've seen or, or studied? I think there's um, there's a certainly multiple dimensions to this. I think, you know, uh, being based in Vancouver, it's, uh, you know, one of the, if not the most expensive city in Canada. You know, we see there's an economic imperative for many, many people. Uh, you know, whether it's the, the, the cost of land, the cost of construction, the cost of housing, uh, even potentially the cost of rent. Um, we're finding that adult people, adult children are, are living with their parents, <laughs> spending longer time there. And in many ways, people are, are uh, looking to combine resources to help improve their, their quality and their standard of living. There's a, a social aspect to it as well. Uh, there's a care aspect, the cost of daycare uh, and the cost of care for the elderly. These are very challenging and complex issues uh, throughout Canada and, and throughout the U.S. And so there are a number of synergies that I think can really be created with this type of um, living arrangement. As we've discussed in previous episodes, we humans are a communal species. For much of human history, we've lived together multi-generationally, raising children and taking care of aging elders as a larger family unit. But between the 1940s and 2008, there was a convergence of events that shifted our thinking on housing, particularly in the United States. In 1940, about one quarter of Americans lived in a home shared with three or more generations, and much of the population rented their homes. Many politicians believed that to be a renter was to be dependent on landlords, and residents would feel obligated to support the political whims of their landlords or employers. Franklin Roosevelt had been interested in housing issues as governor of New York, and he brought his support for housing reforms to the federal level when he became president in 1932. You come to the relief for a moment of those who are in danger of losing their farms or their homes. I have publicly asked that the foreclosure on farms, chattels, and homes be delayed until every mortgagor in the country has had full opportunity to take advantage of federal credit. The Homeowners Loan Corporation or HOLC, was created in 1933 to provide mortgage relief to homeowners at risk of losing their homes through foreclosure. The HOLC also developed a comprehensive housing plan that served as the basis for the National Housing Act of 1934. This law created the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, that insured banks, mortgage companies, and other lenders, thereby encouraging the construction of new homes and the repair of existing structures. And I make the further request that if there is any family in the United States about to lose its home or its farm, that family should telegraph at once, either to the Farm Credit Administration or the Home Loan Corporation in Washington requesting their help. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another, but do it, we will. It was FDR's hope that the law would also spur employment in the construction industry for veterans returning home from World War II. In the short space of these few months, I am convinced that at least 4 million have been given employment. Or saying it another way, 40% of those seeking work have found it. 
That does not mean, my friends, that I am satisfied or that you are satisfied that our work is ended. We have a long way to go, but we are on the way. I must note, although the 1934 National Housing Act and the FHA met the needs of existing homeowners and those Americans financially able to purchase homes, it did little to address the housing needs of the poor, including many African Americans which you can hear about in greater detail in our previous episodes on housing and community. The subsequent housing boom became a vehicle for the cultural shift that was occurring in America, a shift towards individualism. If you look back at the marketing materials of suburban homes at that time, they often promoted the nuclear family in front of their new home, enclosed by a white picket fence. By the late 1940s, the home and white picket fence became synonymous with the American dream. The American dream is still being able to have the white picket fence. 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 The white picket fence. Whether driven by marketing or self-imposed societal pressure, the symbolism of the home and white picket fence was inescapable, entering popular culture as a visual shorthand for success. The norm for American family lifestyles in the 1950s became mom and dad living in a home with their minor children. Aging adults were also likely to live in a home by themselves. Around the same time, a little company that started as an express mail business in Buffalo, New York, and through a series of circumstances expanded into financial services, launched its first credit card on October 1st, 1958. That company was American Express. In this 1960s American Express commercial, the ad opens to an open sea. A man is stranded alone on a raft. He somehow navigates his way to an island where he meanders his way through a village to find a restaurant. At the restaurant, he whips out his American Express to pay for lunch. He then makes his way to a tailor shop where he is able to purchase a suit. Next, off to a hotel, where he again pays with his American Express. The scene cuts to him emerging from an elevator with a freshly shaved face, clean new suit, and he heads off to rent a fancy car, which carries him on to a private jet waiting on the runway. The ad exudes freedom and access, all with the American Express. American Express. It's the only credit card you really need for travel and entertainment worldwide. Public interest for credit had become so significant that 250,000 cards were issued prior to the official launch date. This combination of housing supply, symbolism for success, and credit all set the stage and demand for products to fill the home. This began a cycle of reinforcement for individualism and for more opportunities for product sales. Since the percentage of multi-generational households declined and continued declining, reaching a low of 12% by 1980. Now, studies are beginning to reveal that the shift towards individualism could have unforeseen consequences. An interesting juxtaposition to this downward trend of multi-generational housing can be represented in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, an insular Italian-American community that was largely unknown to society until a 50-year study on comparisons of mortality rates was published in the American Journal of Public Health in 1992. In the 1950s, when heart attacks were an epidemic in the United States, 
a leading cause of death in men under the age of 65 and years before the advent of cholesterol-lowering drugs and aggressive prevention of heart disease, a physician found that in Rosetto, virtually no one under 55 died of a heart attack or showed any signs of heart disease. Without a special diet, active lifestyle, extraordinary genes, or special living conditions, Rosettans defied the odds. In fact, many struggle with obesity, where 41% of their calories came from fat. Drinking was not uncommon, and they smoked heavily. But despite this, there was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, and very little crime. Death there was simply from old age. Researchers realized that it was the community that made the difference. Rosettans visited each other, stopped to chat on the street, or cooked for each other in their backyards. Many homes had three generations under one roof, with grandparents at the head of the household. The percentage of multi-generational households largely stayed low until the 2008 recession when foreclosures and high unemployment rates pushed many adult children back home. The number of multi-generational households increased dramatically and have continued to grow. In 2016, Pew Research found a record 64 million people, or 20% of the U.S. population, living in a multi-generational home. Among this population, 28% are Asian, both Hispanic and African Americans count for 25%, and Caucasian comprises 15%. Today, behind the convergence of events like the COVID-19 pandemic, aging baby boomers, and the continued disparity of wealth, there's reason to believe the trend towards multi-generational living will continue. Now before we get back to our conversation, we're going to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Have you heard of NCARB? It's the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, and they want to hear from you. Yes, you. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in the AEC industry. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Again, whether you're an architect or work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. So make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. That's N-C-A-R-B dot org slash AOP. And now let's get back to the conversation. To give us a little bit of an example, can you tell us a little bit about your project Full House? Yeah, absolutely. Full House is a, an adapt, what we call an adaptable prototype for multi-generational living. And really it was intended as a one configuration that could be deployed across many potential sites uh, in an urban environment. Essentially, it's a, it's a five-bedroom home that has flexibility in the functional program, if you will. And, and it can be reconfigurable to accommodate a number of different scenarios over time. So the five-bedroom house, by virtue in the way that we designed it with a sort of pivoting partition, the partition allows the house to be broken into different types of units. So for example, you can have a single five-bedroom home where people move fluidly throughout it. You could actually have a 
split between a three-bedroom unit and a two-bedroom unit, or you could have a split between a four-bedroom unit and a one-bedroom unit. And essentially, it's kind of like a duplex, if you will. We have uh, two kitchens in the house, and we have an aging-in-place suite on the main floor, and that suite that exists on the main floor is the sort of one that can be allocated to one or either of the discrete units. And so with this kind of approach to scenario-based planning, we, we worked with our interior design collaborator, Gail Guevara, to really play out a wide variety of scenarios for the clients. And then we developed a system that would accommodate you know, those scenarios over 100 plus years. And that's how we arrived at the design. Wow, that's really cool. Did they come to you with sort of a, a list of wants and, and, and needs that really informed or was it just kind of a kicking off point that that you guys ran with and and developed a concept no the clients came to us with a very clear and detailed program brief uh which which we you know we we always love that um (laughs) you know it's a great starting point for the conversation it allows us to really i think go deeper into conversation with clients when they've already contemplated so many aspects of of you know what what a custom home can be and the idea of the multi-generational brief was part of the the foundation of the project yeah. Was that client for that particular project um, going to be the end user? Are they are they the ones actually living in the home? Yes, uh, they are. And, you know, it was very much a, a situation where the parents owned the lot and it was a, a rental house that they had as an investment property for many, many years. And uh, the younger generation who are in their 30s and, and contemplating starting a family, really, I think, through the discussion in the family, thought, you know, this is an amazing opportunity to take this lot, build a home on here that ultimately everybody can live in. How separate is the home between, you define it as the parent, the older generation and the younger generation? Are there, I mean, what is shared and what is separate? The way the house is designed in the scenario where you have the parents, like let's call it the base scenario, where you have both of those generations living in the house, we have two entirely separate suites that have the possibility to be connected at the ground floor or not. So there's a staircase that connects from the primary suite, the primary bedroom uh, on the main floor down to the living space in the garden suite. And there's a second bedroom down there. And that is a fully self-contained discrete unit. And it has a kitchen on the lower floor. And then the main floor has the kitchen and main living area for the other suite and the three bedrooms upstairs. So functionally, you could have two families of the same family, right? But like the parents and then the younger generation with the new spouse and perhaps their children, and they could live effectively in full house, but not see each other. There, there, There's a lock off, right? Like you can have complete private space. You're not sharing a kitchen necessarily. I mean, you have the option, it sounds like, but you don't have to. That's not like part of the design where... Yeah, we share, you know, the powder room and we share the living space and we share the the kitchen and the dining area. That's exactly right, Michelle. I, okay. I think in, in traditional development terms, you, you could describe this as a lock-off suite. Mm-hmm. Michael, can you talk a little bit about your process of designing a multi-generational uh, home and sort of walk us through the, the challenges that you were trying to solve for, um, things that you wanted that you wanted to deliver for the client, things like that? Sure, absolutely. 
the process for this project is fairly standard for us, and it involves developing a very comprehensive design brief. Uh, and this is something that we do for all of our projects, and it, and it serves as a kind of North Star for the entire process. And one of the you know, most important things as, as a, an architect is to be accountable to your clients, to their goals, aspirations, budget, schedule, but also to hold the clients accountable through the process. So the accountability mm -hmm. goes both ways. And developing this quite elaborate design brief is really, really important. It's important to understand the aspirations of the clients. It's important to understand uh, their lifestyle. And I think in this case, in particular for the multi-generational aspect, you know, we had to have fairly frank and, and honest and, and vulnerable conversations about, you know, what it means to age and talk through a variety of scenarios where one of the parents would out-survive the other. And what mm. would that look like? And actually, you know, understand aging and disability and issues in, you know, in the, in the family history to really uh, try to ac account for all of these possible future scenarios. Jeez. I imagine that's quite uncomfortable. How do you how do you kind of get your mind ready for that type of conversation with someone that you know you don't know that well? I would say this that um, you know this type of work, uh, custom single family homework, is a very intimate process. You know you have a lot of very vulnerable conversations. You have a lot of kind of funny, hilarious conversations that that people talk about. You you learn about. Uh, either explicitly or implicitly, you learn a lot about their uh, hang-ups, fears, again, their, their aspirations. You know, and, and I think one of the, the things to, to understand in the design of a, of a custom home of any sort is it's an inherently kind of risky process. And people don't necessarily think about that. You know, if we step back for a minute and we understand that a client, a family has a brief, you know, they want three bedrooms, four bedrooms, X number of square feet, and they have a certain budget. They can go out into the marketplace and buy a home that more or less suits their needs. Yeah. Um, it, it may not be a great home, uh, it may not be a remarkable home, but there are uh, myriads of homes out there that would fit that description. You know, for someone to go through the effort and expense and trouble of finding a lot hiring an architect, hiring a builder, going through this process, you know, uh, making available all the means that they have and all the means that they can borrow and more and yeah. saying, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Can you do this? Uh, you know, is a, is a very vulnerable process. So, so it's inherently, uh, I think, vulnerable. And, and uh, to do it well, uh, the relationship needs to be a, a strong one and a deep one. Yeah. In the multi-generational concept, and in particular with full house, I assume that is just one fee simple lot, right? So in, in the future, it must be sold as one lot, even though there's all these opportunities to bifurcate the home for different living situations. That's right, Michelle. It is one fee simple lot, but um, one of the things that we plan for in many of our um, residential projects uh, detached home projects is the potential scenario where you could stratify the house. Mm. We're, we're seeing in, in cities across North America, and it's certainly the case in Vancouver, that the idea of, of smaller increments of ownership and policy making that lead towards those smaller increments of, of home ownership are really the future. Um, so it, you know, it started in Vancouver, I think, with duplex zoning that goes back decades. But more recently, the idea of, of laneway houses 
um, which can be stratified. And I think what we're starting to see is new policy in, in our city that is allowing up to four and sometimes more units on a custom single family, or sorry, on a standard single family lot. Well, I was going to ask, so on on for full house, um, was there a certain zoning designation? And, and obviously, I'm, I'm not familiar with how the zoning laws work in Canada, but uh, did you have to have, like in in California, it would be, you know, if you were doing a single family detached lot, it's typically an R1 lot, you know, residential one home per lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which in many cases will not allow, you know, sort of the duplex living, even though they're not two separate fee simple units. Um, but you get into the issue of you've got two kitchens that you're permitting for, right? You've got like all these different components that would not typically be in just a one single family home. So in your case with the full house, was it just a simple residential one lot per home neighborhood or do you, was there some sort of other zoning designation that existed? Do you recall? It's a fairly standard zoning. I, to be honest, I don't recall the exact zone off the top of my head, mm. um, but it is not uh, an unusual or exotic zoning. And one of the things about uh, the city of Vancouver in particular is that most of these zones do allow for a secondary suite. You know, which is That's uh, great. T- typically been a little bit different than full duplex zoning. Um, but what we're really starting to see in policy, which is fantastic, is these lines between traditional zones for higher density, duplex, triplex, even quad four units, uh, are starting to become blurred um, between those higher density zones and the and the traditional we call it RS1 in, in Vancouver, uh, residential single-family lots. And so the future of policymaking is, is here in terms of uh, embracing creative ways to allow more living units on a, on a single lot. And then do you find that a multi-generational home like Full House would sell at a premium or would it just simply sell based on its square footage? Is there some sort of like premium that's added on because there are two kitchens? I'm using that as a very simplistic example of having two kitchens, but, or is it more about, no, this is just, you know, this is the square footage and obviously your design is unique and outstanding and and I would imagine leaps and bounds more interesting than the rest of the neighborhood. Um, Maybe we don't know yet because obviously I'm assuming the family that designed or that worked with you to create this uh, still lives in the home. Yes, absolutely. And my my sincere hope is that they, you know, never sell the home and that they sure. live there for generations and generations. That would be the point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think they're, you know, it's an interesting question you ask because we're talking about the, on the one hand, the value of house, say, as a commodity, dwelling unit as a commodity. And on the other hand, what we're really trying to talk about is the idea of permanence and community building and that they would never sell this house. And so that other point, I don't want to say it becomes moot, but uh, you know, it's a slightly different take on the value proposition. I will say that it's more expensive to build a home uh, this way sure. because you're building two kitchens, um, because you have more bathrooms, and because you're really, uh, I think, designing every square inch of the house for uh, a kind of, you know, maximum livability. To answer your question more directly, I would tend to believe that, yes, if this house were to go on the market, it would absolutely sell as a premium, you know, under the idea of it being a duplex. But hopefully, 
more than just a duplex. A duplex with, you know, this amazing opportunity for a kind of symbiotic multi-generational living. So Michael, this the way you explain the design of the house seems super complex. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about some of the complexity of the house? If was that ability to segment it kind of the most difficult part of your design or is it something else when you're approaching a multi-generational home? I I think the scenario planning was really the basis for the design and really playing out and, and, you know, in, in relative detail, the possible living scenarios that could happen. So for example, we have what's, what's kind of the, the base or the sort of default scenario where you have the parents grandparent generation, let's call it, living, you know, in the in the garden suite. And they actually have a spare bedroom in that suite. And then you have the the kind of child and grandchild generation living in the other part of the house. Um, and there may be times when that functions fluidly. There may be times when those two things are completely discrete uh, entities. And then from there, we start to develop a whole host of other scenarios. Uh, you imagine the grandchild generation growing up and becoming sort of university age. Uh, at the same time, you imagine the grandparent generation aging, uh, starting to potentially face health issues, mobility issues. And that's where, you know, we really start to branch into this series of, of possible universes. As I said previously, one parent outliving the other, the need for, you know, care in home and one parent living or both parents living on that main floor and being able to move fairly easily through the house without having to navigate stairs. In that scenario, you can imagine the lower suite actually being a great place for an adult grandchild uh, in this case, going to university, perhaps even setting roots, you know, there and starting a family of their own, you know, full one bedroom, uh, very well appointed kind of garden suite uh, and, and you know, feeling the need to have that privacy of their own uh, works in that scenario. And, and then what you really start to imagine at some point, and this is the, you know, the sort of vulnerable and, and sensitive aspect is you really imagine, you know, the original let's call it child generation, uh, who are now getting to be grandparent age and the, the grandchild generation is now child rearing, you know, the cycle of the house shifts and, and they move into the garden suite and the child rearing generation moves upstairs. Uh, and you start to see this kind of cycle that happens through the house in a way that is facilitated by the relationship of really that aging in place suite and allowing it to be allocated to one or other of the the other units. Yeah. In the home that you designed for full house, was that really intended for two families or what maybe can you talk about the family makeup and then is there an opportunity within that particular home where you might have grandparents and then two maybe two of their children with their spouses with their families or does it just become untenable at that point with that many people? Yeah, we, we definitely contemplated that scenario. Um, you know, the house also has a sort of studio, you know, garage studio uh, on the property that could be potentially converted into another dwelling unit on the property. The idea of how many grandchildren there might be and how we accommodate all those was certainly a question that came up during the conversations. I think what I've seen in many parts of the world, 
outside of North America is that people are actually used to living in much tighter quarters. You know, I think about my mother's history growing up in Poland, and she tells the story about, you know, how they were living in incredibly small quarters. So, you know, if you have couples in the family, this, this grandparent, sorry, this grandchild generation that are growing up, you know, there are a number of potential options to, to have actually, you know, I guess it would be three separate, um, I don't want to say three separate families, but three traditional living units you know, spread throughout the project. Four starts to push it a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, it wouldn't be out of the question. <laughs> it, would, it would be more an exercise in self-awareness, patience, and, and compassion at that point to, to live, you know, with that kind of density. And how do you think about parking, um, you know, parking in the garage? And I'm not familiar enough with the Vancouver public transit system, so I don't know if that's a thing. But like in California, you know, we're so car reliant and parking is, you know, something that every city or agency, local agency is very sensitive to. Um, almost every adult person, it's pretty rare that you would have, you know, a household sharing a car, you might see that more so with grandparents where like my parents, as an example, they, they're a one car family now. Um, mm -hmm. But so like in, in the case of full house, or just when you think about other multi-generational designs that you're, uh, that you have done or are working on, what's your response to how you address parking? Yeah, parking is definitely a, a big consideration in urban environments. And one of the things we're seeing, particularly on the multi-generational side of things, or sorry, uh, on the multi-family side of things, is increasing relaxations in parking in urban environments with the assumption that people would be using public transportation and bike commuting, for example, e-bike commuting. I think when, when we're planning uh, and having this discussion, a lot of it centers around the walkability score. This project has a very high walkability score. I, I don't recall what it is off the top of my head. My test for this is, can you walk to get a coffee somewhere, uh, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a small snack? And in this case, we have a two-car garage in the back. Uh, the way the urban fabric works in this part of the city is that there's a lane. Uh, and so, you know, all the parking and uh, infrastructure for garbage and recycling happens at the lane. Uh, as well as street parking in front of the house. So on a slightly wider lot, you actually can park uh, easily two cars in front of this house, as well as two cars in the garage and a car potentially as well tucked in against the lane. The irony is, uh, as we've earmarked the sort of garage studio as a potential future dwelling unit, if the parking load starts to increase, we start to see a you know, a little bit of tension there between the, de the desire and demand for living space and the demand for parking. Are there current trends that are sort of informing the way that multi-generational homes are approached that you could kind of speak to or highlight uh, things that you guys may have incorporated or that you wanted to, but didn't get a chance to? Well, I would say one of the other aspects of this house is, you know, an incorporated idea around biophilic design. The main architectural feature of this house, in addition to the functional programming, the multi-generational aspect, is a actually quite compact, small courtyard space uh, that exists in the middle of the floor plan. And what this does is it brings light, air, passive ventilation, you know, deep into the house. And it's an architectural device that we've been experimenting uh, with in, in a number of our projects recently, uh, particularly in the custom single-family house 
uh, sort of area, but also in, in the kind of condo development area. Uh, the courtyard is just such an amazing way to create a more intimate connection with nature, really create an awareness of the changing of the seasons. Again, the, the passive ventilation aspect. And we're fortunate in the Pacific Northwest because we have a relatively modest climate, mild climate, and, and things grow very, very easily. Um, there was a, a funny uh, moment the other day uh, where I was actually over at, at the client's house because a small owl had flown into the courtyard <laughs> and had spent the, the night there and the day there and, you know, was a little bit confused. And, yeah. uh, you know, for me, it was kind of a, a, a bit of a, you know, a, a fantasy being, being lived out that there would be some amazing creature that would live in this courtyard. But the clients called the, um, I think it was the, the Owl Rescue Society and somebody actually came and identified the owl as a, a migratory species that was actually just, you know, sort of passing through and captured the owl and sort of gave it a, a full health, health checkup and then released it, um, later in the day. Uh, yeah. but it was a, a kind of an amazing and, you know, delightful moment that, you know, otherwise you would never get to experience. So I would say the aspect of, of biophilic design is really uh, another dimension to um, healthy living. The other thing about this house is that it has a number of habitable outdoor spaces. And so again, with the, the mild climate of the Pacific Northwest, the more we can encourage occupation uh, of the entire lot, including a roof deck, uh, the more we can create these separate zones for people to gather, socialize, and, you know, live amongst one another, but have enough spatial separation and kind of privacy to, to have a little bit of autonomy. Yeah. Can you define um, for, I'm going to say a lot of our listeners, uh, biophilic, <laughs> can you put that in layman's, in layman's terms? Absolutely. Uh, yes. My apologies. Biophilic is, is kind of archy speak. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, biophilic design really focuses on the inherent connection uh, between uh, humans and nature and the natural world. And it sort of is rooted in the, you know, the philosophy that humans and humankind, we don't exist outside of nature. We exist, you know, as a part of nature and are one with it. And so the more that we can understand the design of spaces to welcome nature, the awareness of nature, actual nature into our spaces and break down this kind of binary idea of inside versus outside, the more we can promote the health of, of the occupants of a building. So I want to use that response as maybe kind of a pivot point. So, you know, I've just been flipping through your studio work on your website, and I would say that your style is incredibly unique, right? Like like you have a very distinctive style of architecture in terms of your materials, just your look, your feel, your color patterns, all that, right? Um, which is awesome. I'm curious, so like in the multi, like for using the family that hired you for the full house design, and I know that, you know, the topic of today's podcast is primarily around multi-generational and clearly you've you've done something that's incredibly unique with full house but i'm curious just for your studio practice and we talked a little bit about this at the very beginning but is multi-generational sort of your i would say it's not your bread well let me say it doesn't look like that's necessarily like the primary root of all you do you you're doing a bunch of other things so for that family do you think that they chose you um 
you know, selected your studio because of this biophilic concept and the design and the stylistic architecture that you do, plus the fact that you executed super well on on the full house concept. But I'm just trying to understand kind of the multi-generational relative to just what you do in, in terms of, of just the uniqueness and the quality and the, the type of architecture that you're designing. That's a great question. I would say because we have such a broad uh, portfolio of work, you know, we prize opportunities to work with clients where innovation is at the forefront. Yeah, yeah. You can see it, right? You can see it in, in the product that is is represented on your website. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's actually great to know that we're being successful in that regard then. You know, <laughs> I... Um, if we sort of approach that as the starting point for the work, when you know we select our clients based on their desire for innovation and for, for actual design process. And you know, it allows us to take that lens and and work through a number of different types of project. We're a practice that is grounded in the Pacific Northwest. And so much of the work that you will see that takes place in the Pacific Northwest is dealing with uh a series of common contextual conditions, you know, and and these aren't just ideas about place or even materiality. They're economic, social, you know, environmental, climate conditions. And uh, so many of the materials that we use are grounded and rooted in place. You know, we do work across North America. We've done work, a number of off-grid houses in, in Mexico. Uh, and the work down there looks very different than the work that we do in the Pacific Northwest. I will say with this client in particular, it's a funny story because we usually ask that question to our clients. You know, how did you find us? Why would you like to work with us? Uh, and, and sometimes it's a, you know, it's an interesting conversation because there are a lot of practices that really just specialize in housing. And, you know, as a practice that has a, a quite a, a broad area of expertise, I've often questioned, you know, are we sacrificing something, you know, in, in terms of not being, you know, specialists? I think the benefit of having a practice of a certain size, you know, 20 people, allows us to have a huge number of specialists in-house collaborating together to work with a variety of opportunities. You know, I think one of the things about a very small practice two, four, six people even, uh, is that you, you know, you, you tend to have to have a focus because, you know, you have such a small kind of knowledge base. I will say, you know, for this client, the story that she shared with me was that she walked into one of our boutique, uh, retail spaces, a bakery, and actually said to herself, one day when I design my own house, I would love to hire the architect who did this. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I was really thrilled to hear that. And, and what's interesting to me about that is the idea that you would hire someone who had designed a bakery, a bakery cafe, <laughs> to design your house seems somewhat counterintuitive. But, uh, you know, as I understand it, it's the idea of being able to communicate a feeling of being in a space. And if somebody walks into a space to have a coffee and, you know, a, a croissant or what have you, and says, you know, this just feels amazing, I would love the architect to design a home for me that has this same kind of feeling, you know, and not at all with the same kind of finishes or even, you know, remotely close to the same kind of functional program, but create that atmosphere. And I think that's one of the things that uh, is, a, is a key discussion point that we have in the practice. You know, how are we creating atmosphere? How are we creating the sort of less tangible or obvious aspects uh, of space through our design work? Did I hear you say earlier that you 
within Lucky Studio have an interior design specialist or someone mm-hmm. that's that's maybe working on the furniture layout and uh, the selection of materials for bedding and pillows and things of like of that nature. Yes, absolutely. We we have uh, in-house in, an in-house interior design team. Um, we've, we've had various other specialties, uh, in-house at times, um, ranging from industrial design, prefabrication specialization, graphic design. Um, it's important to note that the images that you see in full house, uh, the interior designer was a a close collaborator and really good friend of mine, uh, named Gail Guevara. And she's an incredibly talented, uh, interior designer. And, and, uh, this project was a collaboration. Yeah, I'm always interested between the relationship of an architect, especially in single family custom homes, you know, maybe more so than than in a commercial property, but that relationship between the the single family custom architect and the interior designer. You know, I think that's just sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't, sometimes the architect's <laughs> working in a silo and and then you kind of get, you know, just the structure and the, the I'll call it the four walls. Obviously, it's more than four walls, but you get, you know, just the building. And, and then the interior is, you know, there's a missing mark there um, because it's kind of an afterthought. That's right. There can absolutely be a disconnect in that regard. We, you know, we tend to do uh, most of our own interiors and we focus on, you know, what we like to describe more as interior architecture. And then there is that sort of other layer of styling and furnishings that go in and, and we, um, more often than not provide that as well. We are also very open to collaborate with uh, interior designers and uh, and stylists in the work depending on what the, you know what serves the client best. But in that collaboration, it's very important to have that early and really understand you know how you can create real synergy. Uh, again, a lot of the work that we do really focuses on trying to create a, a continuous experience of the whole site. So a continuous kind of experience uh, as you transition from outside to inside sure. and, you know, bringing nature through the house and, and, and through the project. And so, you know, really collaborating on the idea of the interiors right from the start and, and developing that at the beginning is really important. And it's interesting to, to sort of talk about this idea because so often you see people building uh, nostalgic uh, styles of house. Uh, and it's very, very puzzling. You know, the artist, um, Donald Judd has written a lot about this in, in the idea of his furniture work. You know, he developed a very kind of modern, sort of humble, you know, style of furniture that, uh, he developed into a whole range of pieces, you know, a prolific number of pieces, but it was very beautiful and very simple. And he commented on this idea that the notion of luxury in any one generation in let's call it uh, the middle class is typically tied to a nostalgic idea of what was luxurious for the aristocracy in generations prior. So people have all this, traditionally have had all this strange Victorian furniture uh, and they've even wanted these, you know, uh, traditional styles of houses because there's some inherent cultural aspiration about class and wealth and you know these issues really also tie into um, the design and also the urban planning aspect uh, of custom single-family homes you know we are living in the kind of long shadow 
of the past when housing was really understood um, much more as a, a kind of socially defining term. Uh, and so it's very, very interesting as a practice to try to break free of those, you know, the, the kind of boundaries and the constraints of, of those traditions and really rethink um, not only for housing, but, but particularly for housing, you know, what a future prototype and idea of living can be that's free of those constraints. Yeah. Michael, that's a great uh, segue into back into the multi-generational. Where do you see this typology going? Is it going to continue to trend up, decline? I think this typology will become more and more prevalent. And I think it, as a trend, let's say, um, will be driven by uh, economic necessity. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's interestingly not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. I think people will, out of necessity, um, be looking for opportunities to live with their family in increasingly long-term ways. And, and I think they're, I'm optimistic. I think as an architect, you have to be optimistic. <laughs> um, I'm optimistic that there are uh, possible benefits that come out of this. What I would really like to start to see and, and like to explore in our work is the opportunity for multi-generational, multi-family housing, where you, hmm. you know, start to have, uh, you know, whole communities that are kind of living together with the flexibility for, uh, you know, what we would traditionally call in-law suites or grandparent suites, you know, so that, that there is a more close-knit understanding of family um, within, within multifamily housing. That would be fascinating. With all of that said, this, this becoming more prevalent, what's one thing that you would recommend for someone taking on a project of this type? I would say the key really is to listen, to talk to the clients and listen and understand them. Um, and it's an, it's an amazing privilege to build a custom single family home. Uh, and, and as an architect to design a custom single family home or a multi-generational home, um, you know, is also an amazing privilege. And, and to, to listen and develop a very detailed design brief, engage in, in vulnerable conversations with clients to, to really understand their goals and aspirations. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, what's the best way for people to follow along? Uh, you know, just Google the studio, search the studio. Uh, our website is leckystudio.com. We have an Instagram feed. We are not overly engaged in, in social media. We tend to be a little quieter on that side. <laughs> I think that um, the Backcountry Hut Company and Arcana are also very interesting uh, side projects um, where we explore uh, our architectural work as well. Great. And Lecky Studio is L-E-C-K-I-E studio.com. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me again. And thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org AOP and contribute to the Analysis of Practice survey today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. 
If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with BuildSmart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.